Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Undermine Season 4. Our intent is all for your delight as we drive down Fish's Highway on the road to fall 1997, 25 years later. I'm Tom Marshall and I'll be your host, your companion and your tour guide, your fish tour guide, as we take 25 stops along the way from 1990 to 1997 and then when we finally arrive at our destination, fall 97, we'll get off the express and hop on the local, deep diving every show of that incredible tour. Uh, we're finding a lot of incredible shows on the way too, and I think Benji will agree with that. Uh, we're on stop number five today, and if you look to your left, or maybe lean to your right, out the window you should see the Roxy Theater in Atlanta, Georgia. We'll stop here for the next half hour or so, and we are very glad that you could join us. Joining us today, of course, is my co-host, fellow Undermine executive producer, New York Times best-selling author, Benji Eisen. He's no stranger to fish. Hi, Benji. Hi, Tom. Um, you know, on the last episode, the previous stop on this fantastic journey that we're on, as it were, we found ourselves at the at the base of Stowe Mountain in Vermont, where yeah. Fish played a, a short, concise opening set for Tarla Santana. You know, and as we talked about, Tarla's joined them for uh, You Enjoy Myself, uh, Llama and Funky Bitch, and that made that tune forever historic. Uh, an instant, you know, instant legend. But today's show that we're going to talk about is more of my kind of fish show. It's more akin to that uh, April 21st, uh, 92 Eureka show that we talked about two episodes back with Holly. Yep. You know, it, it's true, of course, that, you know, no two shows are ever the same, right? And there are several different kind of archetypes for how a show flows. So whatever archetype you want to label this one, uh, let's just say it's my favorite flavor of fish. There's big risk-taking jams. 
<laughs> those class clown moments that would have surely landed the band in, in detention. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's uh, spontaneous mashups and there's this consistent motion to it that makes the entire show feel kind of like one complete movement. Like each song is connected to a greater whole. And, you know, I want to say everything is in its right place, but also everything is kind of all overlapping. Definitely. And of course, no show is complete without an imaginary appearance by Gene Simmons. You know, when a, when a member of KISS is imagined to be present, it's, it's always a good show. Ladies and gentlemen, actually, that reminds me, it's a good time to say our guest today is Mr. Gene Simmons. Uh, unmasked? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, but before, before I reveal his true identity... Uh, let me remind our listeners that if they subscribe to Osiris Premium on Apple, they'll get ad-free podcasts, bonus episodes, and much more. But all obvious kiss jokes aside, Benji, it occurs to me that the reason we have a guest for every show is supposedly so that they can bring special insight, you know, and usually they were there. However, as you and I have been talking about, especially just before this, so far, our only, our only guest who has been at the actual show was Amy Skelton. She was, of course, at Amy's farm. Um, <laughs> but our other guests so far didn't attend the show that we were covering, John Paluska, Shelley Culbertson, Holly Bowling, for example. But that's about to change, right, Benji? Tell us about well, our guest. First, um, I hate to do this, man, but I have a slight correction. So Josh Carver, who we are about to meet, did not attend the ROTC on this night. Oh, I'm going to quit if you can't. No, 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 here's the thing. So the ROTC was a three-night stand, and he was at the first night. He was on Friday and Sunday. So he was at the night before and the night after. He was so in the bread, not the meat. That's right. So <laughs> why he skipped this night is obviously something we'll have to ask him and, you know, look, I'm sure that it hurts. Uh, as somebody that flew to Vegas for Halloween 98, but then missed Utah's Dark Side of the Moon, you know, I, I think, I, yeah, I think we feel his pain then. But uh, but since he was there, he'll be able to shed light on, you know, Fish's, uh, it's one of their first, like, high-profile three-night stands outside of Burlington. Obviously, they did Telluride, and they did other things there. But to my memory, this is kind of the first, like, outside of their home base down in Atlanta, three night stand. It's a big deal. And uh, as we look back, you know, not only on the show of honor, but as you know, on this, this weekend as a whole, I think we can kind of put it in the greater context of Fish's road to 97. All right, bring on yeah. our guests and I'll get him out of the, uh, out of the waiting room. Yeah. But let me introduce him. Uh, he's a longtime fish fan. He's a longtime Osiris listener uh, Tom, that means he's heard you many, many times. He, he's a friend of many of us here at Osiris. He was on HF Pod. He's been on Beyond the Pod and other pods. Ladies and gentlemen, Josh Carver. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hey, Josh. Doing fantastic. And I have a question for you. I'm not sure how much of that you could hear in the waiting room, but um, why'd you miss this show? <laughs> I, there's really no good reason why I missed the show. Um, you know, I remember my first show was on uh, December 31st, 1992 at Matthews Arena.
I've been listening to Fish for a couple of years. Uh, finally got to a show. Um, I'm from the Boston area, so I caught that New Year's Eve show. And I think they announced these Atlanta shows either in late December or early January of 93. I actually went back and found the old uh, Fish newsletter, um, you know, where they announced these shows. It was before the Fish newsletter was called the uh, Doniac Schweiss. Um, and they only they initially only announced two shows. So they announced the Friday and Saturday show. I must have only purchased tickets to the Friday show, figuring, you know, still not like a huge, huge fish head. I don't think I'd probably seen the December 31st show yet. And then the first two shows sold out. They added a third show. So I grabbed a ticket to the Sunday night show, but um, I didn't get a ticket to Saturday night. Um, and I don't even remember like trying super hard to find an extra ticket, you know, somebody selling it at my college. I just didn't go. It was a Saturday night. I probably spent the evening sitting in my dorm room, you know, drinking cheap beer. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Josh, I've uh, I've been looking into the, you know, this show has been on my radar since uh, since uh, probably since, you know, 1993, 94, when I really got into fish. Um and I've always wondered about the scene because, you know, the venue no longer exists. Well, it's now like a different theater, but I was looking it up last night and I was always trying to find images in my mind about it. You know, the Roxy, it's not that big. It's only, it only holds uh, like 1600 people, 1600. So it's, it's tiny. Can you tell us, I mean, I want to, I want you to kind of fill us in about what the scene was like, but first tell us about the venue as you remember it. Um, it's funny when I went back and I looked and I saw the venue held like 16 or 1800 people, it surprised me that it was that large. Like my memory, it felt like a smaller venue. And, um, yeah, I mean, like it was, it was still a pretty intimate scene. Like I remember that the Friday night show that I went to, I was, you know, standing right down front. I think it was like the one show that I've actually like rode the rail where I didn't have any difficulty just, you know, walking in a half an hour before the show started. And I was right up there. Like there weren't a ton of people kind of hanging outside the venue before the show started. Um, the whole floor was general admission and then they have a balcony, you know, with seats, but you know, the whole place was general admission, you know, just kind of a small, um, you know, kind of small club slash theater right in the Buckhead area of Atlanta. So um, I think you kind of answered what I was going to ask uh, uh, over over Benji's question as well. Um, and I was sort of imagining, I remember Trey kind of telling me like this was a big deal that they're playing the Roxy in Atlanta. Of course, I'd never heard of it being a New Jersey, sheltered New Jersey boy. Um, and I was like, good for you. Have a great one. And, you know, because we were in the middle of songwriting, some of the songs for, for Hoist, we just figured out, I think, Rift had just come out. Um, but so we were in communication a lot, but I kind of lost track of their touring. It, but I remember imagining um, or not imagining any kind of like selling out or whatever. And that's amazing that they sold out. But are you saying there's no like people milling out in front with the fingers in the air yet? That kind of that scene hadn't happened, that mob scene? I, I just I remember like, you know, a couple dozen people outside, you huh. know, outside the venue before the, the show started, you know, it was kind of a downtown area of the city. Um, so, you know, there weren't like, you know, lots of, you know, people hanging out in lots or like a shakedown. Right. I really don't remember any of that. I remember that vaguely from like, you know, the Matthews Arena show, you know, in Boston, but at, in Atlanta, it was still, it kind of felt sleepy and intimate. 
Um, but I, I do think those first two shows actually sold out. I'm imagining that's why they added a third one. Um, and I was looking at their tour schedule and when they added that Sunday show, they ended up having like, they played seven straight shows, shows wow. seven days in a row, which obviously they don't do much anymore. Or, or even back then, you know, uh, but you know, so, okay. So you, you do the first night and you do the third night and obviously you must've heard about the second night. But the thing is, is that, you know, now when Fish does anything, we hear about it within two seconds of, of them doing it. But at the time, this was before we had Twitter, before we had Fish from the Road updates or, you know, any kind of Internet in our pockets, let alone, you know, even in our homes. They, you know, it was still 93 was just, you know, the the onset of that. So how did you hear what happened on the second night? I was in my dorm room that Saturday night, and I actually specifically remember um, a kid who like was on my hall coming back at like 1130 or midnight. And I like walked out of my dorm and I was like, hey, his name was Jason. Um, I'm like, hey, Jason, like, you know, how was the show tonight? What did they play? And he said they played everything, <laughs> which <laughs> they kind of did. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, and then I think I, you know, asked him a few more questions and he, he just kind of talked about the second set, obviously. Um, and it wasn't until probably I, I wasn't trading tapes yet at the time, other than just getting some tapes from like, you know, fr friends in college. Um, so it probably wasn't until, I don't know, sometime over the summer where I finally got a tape of the show. And so I didn't have like huge FOMO you know, at the time until like that summer when I listened to the tape, I was like, oh shit. Mr. Gene Simmons. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of the speaking of the tape, um, you know this particular show. Of course, we're talking about 220, 1993, the middle show of a three night run at the Roxy in Atlanta, is widely widely circulated, and, and it became a fan favorite, and is still many people's favorite shows. You know, it's on their top five. Um, so we're going to talk to you about the show specifics when we come back from a short break. Um, but in one quick sentence. Um, you know, now that you've listened to the tape and, and you know the show, could you summarize the absolute highlight or your highlight? This may be not kind of what most people's highlights are, but um, the opening tree are the opening pair of Wilson into Reba hmm. and just the, the syncopated jamming in Reba. I just feel like there's this looseness to the Wilson um, where they're kind of screwing around a little bit towards the end of the song. And then they just feel like really, really locked in during the Reba. And, you know, I'm just kind of imagining kind of that loose feeling combined with the band just really connecting well with each other, maybe kind of what led to the next hour of music.
excellent. I, I was, uh, and of course, when you say the opening, you're talking about only the second set, which 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 is the big highlight. I, I thought you might have said either Mike's or the second set because, you know, the second set is actually like he said Wilson's. It, you have to listen to it to understand what the kind of state of craziness is happening here. But it's kind of like uh, fish is at their best, in my opinion, in many people's opinion here in terms of fun craziness, craziness mixed with, you know, raw talent. And it's a must listen show. But like, here's a couple items. Um, I, I was telling a friend when I told him that we were going to do this uh, interview today Um Remind me, he said, of what, what happens. Why does everyone like this show? And I just wrote, um, Wilson has the Simpsons signal and an Iron Man tease into a stellar Reba with a Woody Woodpecker tease and amazing playing into a tweezer with a straight from the sewer rap in the, in the quiet parts between the verses. They, they were rapping. Um, and then there's a lowrider jam goes into walk away. And then back into Tweezer, into Glide, and finally into Mike's, which I won't explain anymore, apart from saying it's a very unusual mic. There's nothing usual about the mics uh, at all, nothing usual about it. There might be six teases in it before it goes into My Mind's Got a Mind of Its Own, but enough play-by-play. <laughs> Tom, thank you for the play-by-play. You know, I hope that everyone listening is playing along or has played along or will play along by listening to the actual show, of course. Um, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Tom Marshall, myself, Benji, and our special guest, Josh Sharver, will provide you with some actual color commentary as we revisit Fish at the Rodsey from Atlanta, February 20th, 1993. All right, and we are back from break. Josh. Josh Carver, we are talking about the second show of a three-night run at the Roxy. You saw two of the three. The band had done three nights before, including out of state, but this felt like a milestone. Do you remember what it felt like at the time? I mean, I remember a lot of my friends, you know, in college. I was a freshman in college, so this was basically, you know, new friends that I just made over the last three or four months, and a lot of people that I knew were going to these shows um, you know, it really seemed like kind of it was a big thing. Um, and I also recall that um, the Saturday morning after the Friday show is when uh, tickets to the Grateful Dead's spring run at the Omni went on sale at like the local outlets. So it was sort of just this combination. It was just it was a very important weekend um, in my freshman year of college that I'll just never forget. You know, this was uh, the band's riff period, I, I guess you, you could call it that. You know, Tom, you wrote a lot of the songs that the band suddenly had in the repertoire that, of course, are now classics, but at the time, there was the, it was the new song cycle, right? And on, on this particular night, well, <laughs> it seems as intensive a night as it was for the riff material, they stuck more to the ballads. They did uh, Horse Silent and Fast Enough for You. But over, over the weekend, they played, you know, Horn, Rift, Maze, Sparkle, My Friend, My Friend, It's Ice. You know, and the, the album was released, uh, as we mentioned earlier, it was released just just two weeks before this run. Of course, they had played, you know, the, the songs weren't all, all new, but the album was. Josh, did it seem to you when they were playing these new tunes, uh, you know, it, it, this fertile period of fish where a lot of people were seeing them for the first time, but you also have, you know, these hardcore fans that are coming down to Atlanta. 
did the new tunes, you know, uh, were they were they new to you, or you were you already familiar with them? Did the audience seem like they, you know, like what are these new tunes? I mean, I re- I recall. I'm pretty sure Rift was released bef- just before this run, like in early February. So I was definitely familiar with the Rift tunes. I mean, I remember taking like several different buses to get to like the local Tower Records to pick up Rift the CD. Um, so I was definitely familiar with the songs. Um, and I mean, I recall the audience being, you know, very connected with the band and, you know, even the new songs, you know, even if the tapes weren't circulating as much as, you know, live music does now on the internet, people seem to, you know, be, be very much on top of both the old and the new songs. Josh, this is uh, the first tour where Paige had a grand piano. And uh, again, from the insider's perspective, I remember Trey kind of making a big deal about it. And I was thinking, like, what does that really mean to the audience? Is it going to sound a lot different? And would the audience notice it kind of thing? I could Obviously, the roadies are going to notice it because now there's extra work and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, they opened the run with Loving Cup for, for him to play that beautiful intro. And nowadays, when there's any update to the band's uh, instruments or setups, it's heavily analyzed online and with podcasts like ours. Um, but was that talked about or noticed at all, as you remember? I, I don't I don't recall noticing it or thinking about it. Like, that was my second show, so I'm not sure if I noticed that ah. Paige didn't have a grand piano, you know, on, on New Year's before. Eve. Right. Exactly. But... Uh, I mean, we obviously noticed the sound of it as soon as they played Loving Cup to to start the run. As we mentioned before, it's it's really hard. And again, why we have you on, even though you weren't at this show, but you were on the other side, you know, the before and after. This run is just so great as a run in itself. Uh, In fact, when Fish officially released the shows at the Razzie, it was, you know, just like they had done with Hampton. They they felt they needed to release all three shows back in the days when they actually did CD bot sets. <laughs> um, but, you know, the the first set of the first night alone is, like, amazing. It has that, and it always gets overlooked, but it has Eternal Forbin narration, which to me always makes the set special. Um, and it's a special narration apologizing for... I guess uh, the, a, a cancellation that they had to make beforehand uh, the previous time they're going to be down there. And then it has this, uh, to me, the highlight is the unforgettable David Bowie, Moby Dick, 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 you know, where they, it's like a 15 minute David Bowie. They, it, it's also full on Moby Dick at points. Uh, and it's just, it's unbelievable.
And then, of course, on the third night, the band, also a great night, by the way, the band was hinting at this bluegrass side of them that was going to come and that they were going to further indulge in, in 1994 and, and beyond. Uh, can you just give us the highlights of the of the shows, you know, the other two nights, the shows that you were at? Yeah, I mean, um, the, obviously the the Bowie Moby Dick celebrating Fishman's 28th birthday and just thinking like they're still kids back then. Um, and there's actually a vacuum solo in that Moby Dick uh, Bowie intro while Fishman's still playing drums. Like you can still hear him playing the hi-hat for Bowie. So I don't recall him, you know, very often doing a, a vacuum solo while also playing drums. Um, and I mean, I love the, um, the Jimmy Herring sit in, in the uh, second set of the first night. Um, and it just shows there's like, there's just ca this casual intimacy that you really just feel that I think, you know, very soon, you know, come the summer, they're playing sheds in the East coast and, uh, you know, Jimmy Herring's up there and, and you can hear Trey call out before they start singing, uh, playing my sweet one. Um, he's like, not too fast, not too fast. And, you know, Fishman starts the drum intro several times at a very fast tempo. Um, and then a couple songs later, they play uh, Llama at, I think, an even quicker tempo. So, I mean, Jimmy Herring could, could you know, keep up. Um, and, uh, and, and then, oh, and the other thought that I had in terms of uh, the encore the first night, they play ACDC Bag. Um, and uh, Trey, like, uh, he, he talks about how somebody had like asked them to play it at a party the night before. And again, it just shows like this, this intimacy between the band and the fans where, you know, like a year later, Trey's not talking about, Oh yeah, we saw some guy at a party last night who wanted us to play this song. Um, and then, you know, that last night, um, I love the stash, uh, into Manteca back into stash. Um, it's a great, you know, actual Manteca, not just like a Manteca, a Manteca tweet, uh, tease, um, and having never, ever heard a uh, big black furry creature from Mars before, not even knowing what it was, um, cause you know, I was still a pretty new fan. I didn't have tapes just like seeing them do this. And I, I definitely recall, um, you know, Trey and Mike taking their, you know, guitar and bass and, you know, just kind of twirling them around the stage. It was just like this other side to the band that I didn't even realize existed. Um, and then they follow that up with, you know, Reverend Jeff Mosier doing some bluegrass songs in the encore. Like it was such a great kind of, I mean, not my first show, but like, I just caught so many different facets of the band over these two, what should have been three nights of a fantastic run. That's great. Um, and, uh, you know, thanks for, thanks for remembering all that. There's, there's something that I want to ask, and this could go to this could go to Benji because, of course, you you, you weren't there, of, of you know, on the second night. But Benji mentioned uh, Gene Simmons in the intro, and that goes right before the final week of Pog, I think. Um, but I I remember uh, Kiss being covered a few times. But is it always that this song? Is it always rock and roll all night? Uh, have they ever covered any other Kiss? I I almost want to say, and I might be making this up. I want to say that they that there is a tease of Beth 
at some point in the future, <laughs> but but I I might be making that up because if if there was, I remember reading that like in a the like the Farmer's Almanac or something like the physical years and years and years ago. But yeah, rock and roll all night is, is, seems to be the one. It seems to be the one, and I was I just mean, uh, wouldn't that be the one that you do? Right? Yeah, I mean it is really kind of. To me, one of their best. I did have a friend who was so into Kiss that, uh, you know, I, I played him this, and he was like, okay, Fish cool. is legit now. Doesn't Fishman <laughs> uh, give props to Kiss for saying, introducing him to, like, the, the six-foot flame or whatever it is that he says? <laughs> yeah, I also remember, and I have a picture of it, uh, on an early California trip. i got to find it so we can attach it to this episode. Early California trip. Uh, Mike had Gene Simmons boots backstage and they were like full length leg silver boots and the heels like this long and that they have like wings and stuff and he had it on and it was incredible. I hope I can find that. Um, but really, Josh, thank you for shedding light on this all time classic fish show, this fish run and also on this era of fish. And to all our listeners out there in audio land. Thank you for listening, and to all our YouTube watchers, thanks for watching. Remember to review and subscribe wherever you listen or watch. On the next episode, we'll be driving up the coast three months after this show to the legendary night in Durham, New Hampshire, and our guest will be former fish road manager Brad Sands. So come along and hang out, and until then, blaze on. And Josh, thank you again. Thanks for having me on. All right, and thank you, Benji. Thanks, Tom. See Thanks, you next Josh. time. Osiris. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are the Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. <laughs>